I'm sure that a lot of these guys, Joseph Henderson, Pedro Salgado, guys like this, they would easily be jumping 26 and 27 foot long jumps. Um, and again, that's been achieved. Like, you know, if you compare Pedro Salgado to, you know, a, a, a track and field jumping athlete, you know, he's spending a much smaller period of his total training on developing that maximal ability probably has a much less developed strength conditioning program on top of it. So how are, how are parkour athletes achieving these levels? And I believe it's because there's this open-ended aspect of play in what they're doing. They're tapping into flow state effectively. So I think that as coaches, the lesson that we get from this is that the self-organization potential of athletes and the power of play is vastly more than we realized it. That was Rafe Kelly, and you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by our longtime sponsor, Simply Faster. There are a lot of sports technology companies out there, but Simply Faster is the only website you can go to that features an online store that covers the bandwidth of training technology, from force plates to timing systems to muscle simulators and more. Some products of Simply Faster that I use and love include things like the Freelap Timing System in K-Box or coaches' favorites such as GymAware. Recently, Simply Faster has added two units that as a coach, you should definitely take a look at. The first is the Muscle Lab Contact Grid which is an extremely affordable and portable step-by-step, literally, system to collect data on jumps, bounds, sprints, agility, hurdle hops, and really as much as your creative mind can imagine. In what used to take a whole runway worth of collecting of data collecting strips, the contact grid does it all with only two small strips that together cover up to 40 meters of sprinting. Ground contact time, step rates, rhythms, and beyond are at your fingertips with this device. Another new unit, the VO2 Master, is an ultra-portable gas exchange analyzer. Don't guess on energy system development when you can get direct insight into VO2 capabilities in relation to specific sports skills, rather than uh, being hooked up to tubes on a treadmill or worse yet, a cycle ergometer to get a VO2 max. Think of the VO2 Master as your own gas exchange lab without the tubes and wires. Deepen your analysis in the specific conditioning preparation of your athletes with the VO2 Master today. These products and incredible customer service make Simply Faster your go-to for your sports technology needs. I'm happy to have partnered with them in sponsoring this podcast. Their support has been tremendous, so check them out today at simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. Welcome to episode 174 of the Just Fly Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Smith. Thanks for being here today. Our guest is Rafe Kelly. Rafe is a you could call him a movement expert, but that really doesn't do quite justice to his diverse experience in this thing we call training or sport or movement or any or disciplines or any uh, combination of all those things. Rafe is the owner of Evolve Move Play, which is a Seattle-based business that teaches humans the joy of movement. Uh, Rafe, his main discipline is parkour, but uh, and it might take me a little while to list everything else that he has done and experienced, but a few of those things were several disciplines within the martial arts, traditional strength and conditioning training in the scope of either try to dunk a basketball or lift heavier weights. He has experience as a gymnast and gymnastic coach, functional range conditioning specialist, which is actually how I originally found him, a video that he had done there, uh, modern dance, sprinting, and many others. 
So Rafe co-founded Parkour Visions at age 23, and he eventually left to form Evolve Move Play. And Rafe's passion is to help people build the physical practices that will help make them the strongest, most adaptable, and resilient versions of themselves. So when we think of training, we tend to think lifting weights, growing muscles, quantified training programs. A lot of times we hear the word movement, and we just instantly think of something that's extremely esoteric and isn't going to get you stronger. <laughs> I think a lot it comes to mind a lot of times. Or we think of play, and we think of too unstructured to make a difference. But at the end of the day, uh, there's athletes who were born out of play, as you're going to hear Rafe talk about, who are incredibly athletic and powerful and adept. And my goal in this show has always been to reach, to, to, to have a reach as far and wide as I can to uh, encompass as many fields as I can to find what the best athletes they're in are doing. Rafe's, uh, not only his knowledge of training and motor learning is second to none, but just the overall philosophy that encompasses it, uh, how to manage a group, group dynamics, uh, emotional states. We're going to talk about a lot in this show today. The main things are going to be structured versus unstructured training, uh, impact of a play-based warm-up, and how to know when a group is ready for harder work. He's going to talk about his own lessons from parkour-based training, how he could jump higher at age 37 when just doing parkour as his primary form than when he was younger and 21 and doing dunk-specific, vertical jump-specific, weightlifting, plyometrics, and the whole rigmarole-based training. And then we're going to take that a little bit into, we're going to get into the practical pieces of that, talk about the impact of complex training, as well as Rafe's, uh, Rafe's vision of movement and fitness at large. This is a critical podcast. I enjoyed this immensely. I think that it's about movement. It's about enjoying and loving what you do. It's about more than, it's, it's about the heart and the core of what it means to train and be an athlete. And when that's achieved, the results are phenomenal. So I'm going to stop there and get to the show. This was amazing. I hope you guys enjoy it as much as I did. Let's get to episode 174 with Rafe Kelly. So your background is probably a little bit different than a lot of fitness professionals. What led you down the, the I guess, quote unquote, movement path of things? Yeah, um, hard to say. I always find it interesting where to start this question, but really, like, I guess I grew up as part of the counterculture at the end of a dirt road and... I was running around climbing in the woods all the time as a kid. Um, I started martial arts when I was six years old. So I've been training martial arts off and on pretty much my whole life since then. And then, um, you know, a really big turning point in my life. So I had ADHD and dyslexia and I was, you know, I was basically testing as if I wasn't making any progress in school. So they wanted to hold me back after kindergarten and then after first grade and then after second grade. And then, uh, after third grade, they insisted that I be held back and I had a mentor who came into my life and took over my education at that point. Um, and he, he kind of did a couple things with me that really helped. One was he read the Lord of the Rings to me. Um, and that was like, I was so excited about that story that it gave me the motivation to go and like make myself read so that I could read it to myself. But the other was he roughhoused with me all the time. So anytime that I wanted to like wrestle, he would wrestle with me. And that was like really profoundly healing for me. And there's lots of information about how like high energy boys in particular, like they really benefit from intense physical play to regulate their emotion, to regulate, you know, essentially develop them cognitively. Um, so that was super beneficial to me. And then when I was like 12 years old, I became a mentor for other kids and I was, I was doing the same thing with them. 
Then at 15, I got really into basketball and gymnastics after watching the 1996 Olympics. And after watching, uh, my brother showed me Hoist Gracie and the first year, I had a little bit of kickboxing at that point in my life. And I pretty much have been actively training since. I got into strength training and lifting weights and, you know, doing all that so I could dunk basketball, right? Like a lot of people. Um, and then when I was 23, I discovered parkour. And for me, parkour was kind of, uh, um, you know, this super powerful motivation. It, it just, I fell in love with it as soon as I saw it. And that's, uh, I guess that's a little short version of how I got started. Yeah, that, that's really good stuff. And I feel like you have a lot of, there's a lot of parallels uh, to me in my own life. I I had a, I would say school didn't serve me as well as it could have. I felt like I had a different approach to learning and things like that. And I, I there's, there's a lot of areas that I feel like I'd like to, like the rough housing I want to get into later on the show. But uh, same thing, like growing up trying to dunk a basketball, like the, this end game skill that was just so motivating for me. And I, I think it's, and it's interesting how at 23 you got into parkour. I I did a little bit of break dancing in high school and really loved it. It actually happened to help my athleticism quite a bit and in some ways that I wasn't expecting. And and I'd like to get into that a little bit as well, but I find in my own adult and older life if I just train to dunk. I'm 36 now and I it's still I can still train at a fairly high level. But it's not, it's just not as rewarding. If you do the exact same things you did when you were 17 or 18, it's just not rewarding in the same way. And so I'm always finding myself, if I'm running sprints, I have to put hurdles in the track and do it at random intervals. And and they're just finding the flow state in training is really what's kind of defined a lot of my life in training recently, more than a little bit more than sets and reps and exercises. And I suppose that's a probably a pretty big reason that I'm talking to you right now. <laughs> I'd love to address that actually, because it's something I've been thinking about recently. Because, um, you know, I think the biggest problem that we face in our industry is the problem of motivation, right? Like, if you go to a physical therapist and you have an injury um, and they prescribe some set of exercises to you, um, they know that it's very unlikely that you're going to do them, right? Compliance rates are horrible in physical therapy. Um, and we've got like a $30 billion fitness industry and we have the most unhealthy population in the world, right? Yeah. For everything that's into it. Yeah. <laughs> so how do we, how do we fix that? And I, I think flow, which you just mentioned is a really important part of it, but we've been thinking about this in reference to kind of some of our, the feedback that we've been sifting through for our online programs and we're thinking that like basically what everybody needs to engage in physical practice is like they need some combination of like feeling safe enough, um, feeling like they're supported properly, like having social support and like not feeling like people disapprove of them. And then they need a balance between structure and novelty. So I noticed that I was talking to a few people who like used to do parkour and I was like, oh, I liked it at first, but then I burned out of it. And I started noticing the pattern that like for a lot of the people who burn out of parkour, um, it's because they didn't have enough structure. They didn't know where it was going. And so when they end up getting frustrated with something, it's not worth sticking with. But then a the flip side, like people who do a lot of strength training or traditional fitness, I think they get, they burn out because there's too much structure. There's no variation. There's no novelty. And so you get, it's just, 
you just can't keep doing the same thing forever. And I think that's what you're you're referencing. And like, I just think that's such a profound thing to, to think about. Like a game that's really engaging is a game that contains both a structure that provides clear orientation and goals and like infinite variation. So like people will go play basketball and be motivated to play basketball for years and years and years. Same for soccer, same for any of these things. And it's because it has so many ways that it can play out. And so in our training, in our the way that we work with people, we have to think about how do we create enough structure so that they have a clear direction that they're going to, so that the goal organizes them and gives them motivation, but that there's always something new that's being generated that's intriguing and novel because if there's nothing new they're gonna burn out yeah i was i've been going through uh pretty pretty rapidly uh a lot of your videos a lot of ito portal videos and i like what ito portal talks about the zone one zone two and zone three and the idea of the generalist versus the specialist and well i train athletes so there's definitely a level of specialization i mean at the end of the day their success is hinges on how well they can specialize but yep. there's also the uh in the Bonderchuk training pyramid where you have the specialization realms at the top and the bottom is the general so everything that supports that or underlies that you have to have some general even if you're a specialist you have to have some general work in your training at some point just to maintain the foundation and i feel like that's where that's where that um, level one or, or whatever the term is can really ring true because they're continuing. And I feel like elite athletes like to do that anyways. They're always trying to find ways to make a workout novel, even if it's sometimes frowned upon, I think, uh, by what our traditional exercise standards would be. But it's almost as if for them, novelty is more important than whatever the, the next strength progression is because they already, they already have the tools for the game in many ways and they're just trying to have fun, ways to continue to have fun. Yeah, I've been thinking about this recently. Um, I'm I'm really interested in in the ecological dynamics of uh, of like motor learning models and like all these ideas around how you keep training coupled and how you um, how you make sure that you're you know how do you play the games that are going to have the most impact on you as a human being, right? And I think that a lot of what's happening in kind of movement culture in a general sense is picking the games that that are the kind of the the least impactful actually um so i've been thinking about this critique it's like if you're gonna if you're gonna go learn from a boxer and you want to get the 20 percent of what a boxer does that has 80 percent of the impact like juggling balls on your fist isn't that right? So you need to have, you know, like the thing that, that a boxer has is the ability to like recognize the moment when they can hit with a strike, the ability to create power with the body, the ability to interact, you know, with rhythm, read someone else's rhythm. And all those things have to come out of interaction with another person. Um, and like, you know, maybe the power you get from working on the bag, but that's, that's the core. Um, and then these, these things like hitting the tennis ball on a string, these are the ways that, you know, this is how the, the athlete who, you know, has got the 80% gets the 1% at the end, right? Cause it's like, 
it's great to get the, you know, the, you know, you're familiar with the Pareto distribution, right? Yeah. 80, 20. Uh, yeah. The 80, 20 rule. Right. So it's like a lot of times people's focus on the 80, 20 rule, but they don't realize like, if you're, if you want to be an elite athlete, you'd have to do a hundred. <laughs> getting to 80% isn't going to do the work, isn't going to do it, right? You want to be as efficient as possible, but eventually you've got to like find the things that you're going to squeeze to get that tiny little bit of juice that might make you a, um, that 1% better than the next guy. If everybody's doing the weight training and everyone's doing the sprints and everybody's doing, you know, playing basketball or boxing or whatever it is, what's going to give you that edge? Um, so, for us as generalists, right, or building a generalist, and I think like everybody who's working with specialists should understand the idea of generalists and vice versa, um, because you know we look at the old Soviet model. It's like you start with a generalist, and that's how you create a foundation that's ba- big enough for everything. Um, but anyways, uh, you know, if you have that eighty twenty rule, like you 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 want to. As a generalist, in my opinion, you want to be in the 20% of all these different practices. But then you also have to have that room for play. Because if you look at the great specialists, they always have, they're always doing some things that they don't, that maybe they don't necessarily need to do, right? It's like the model of, you know, street basketball versus like traditional, you know, sport basketball or, you know, the way the Brazilians played soccer, right? They, they all play soccer. They do the game, but then they go juggle the ball too. And they do acrobatics and play around. Um, it's like some balance there between you. You have to play things that make it fresh and make it interesting too. Yeah. It reminds me like speaking, we have that commonality of originally training to dunk. And one of the <laughs> things that I really enjoy is watching it's, it's never in a formal training setting. It's always the street dunkers. These guys, these guys can get up. Is they'll do acrobatics in their in between. Sometimes you'll see them doing uh, back handsprings and backflips and things like that. Not everybody, but the most athletic ones. And sure. so, and eventually that works its way into the dunks, the cartwheel dunks, and and even dunk training is an interesting one because a lot of a lot of athletes will actually do better if you do basketball and high jump. A lot of people will be jumping their highest. Uh, a short time after basketball season ended with track being the next season in line. And then the mm-hmm. further they get away from basketball, the, the worse things start to get, the more they, they overly over-specialize where there's no, that, that nervous system path got so narrow that it ever just got squeezed out. And I, that's something I do think about all the time. I like, I like that you brought up the Brazilians in soccer at one of the Edo portal videos I was watching recently. I just, I think I was just eating and just watching, like, as I eat lunch, I was just watching this over and over again. <laughs> he had, uh, it was like Diego Mir- uh, Miradana, so one of the best dribblers mm-hmm. of all time, uh, Sugar Ray uh, Leonard, and then Rickson, who I'm not sure who that is. I feel bad if it's like a big figure that I should know, but it's just all the like the little quirky things that they were doing either in warming up or just training on the beach or while jogging that define their movement and i think it was miradona particularly who this guy's like warming up for soccer but he's just doing throwing like barrel rolls in there or like forward rolls and it's like like moving his hips in all different directions and doing like bear crawls throwing the ball over his head and just it's just all natural i'm sure no one told him to do any of that stuff it was just who he was (laughs) and i feel like that's that's the thing that we can learn so much about so i i yeah, I think and for for me too. I, I one of the things that I think a lot of people listening to this show would be interested in 
is well how and you said it how much of this the session should be structured how much should be uh free flowing and i think in a typical like a typical strength training session uh, i mean how what's the, the like the ratio i i personally for me i like doing if it's an hour session i like about 20 20 to 25 minutes that's pretty free flow and then about 30 minutes of structured and five minutes to end as a, as a group I, if I don't do that, I find I really end up getting bored as a coach at about the 40 minute mark when you get into the extremely structured auxiliary work. <laughs> and it's just, I don't know. I, I, I always wonder what the athletes are getting out of it at that point. Sometimes if they, you just went through 60 whole minutes of everything is structured every, like, I, I always think there's a ratio there. So I know, uh, I guess what I like to ask you is I, I know your work is in, in movement and parkour and natural movement. In terms of, or what are your thoughts on that, though, for a typical fitness setting where it's like, okay, we are going to do some weightlifting or we are going to do some structured technical things and some not structured technical things. Do you have any ideas on how a practical session might shake out there? Yeah. I mean, I think it's really context dependent, right? It's like, are you working with children? Are you working with a, like kind of athletes right as they're coming up, right? Are you working with athletes who are super established? Um, I think all those are really different. And like within my own practice and working with people, like I find that I kind of weave back and forth between more structure and less, less structure. I'm always looking for that. Like, um, there's this idea, you know, um, I kind of got, got this from Jordan Peterson, but like in life, we're always dealing with this, this balance between order and chaos, right? Order is what kind of gives shape to things and allows them to form but it's also what constrains things and sort of tyrannizes them and where we become stagnant. And then chaos is the, you know, is the source of novelty and the source of like um, where interesting things happen. Um, But too much of it blows you apart. And so in my own training, I find that you're always kind of, uh, and then the Tao, right? The Tao is basically the point at which you're perfectly balanced between chaos and order the way. And the, um, when we're training, essentially, as we go, it's like we, we're we trying to find that balance, but we end up having more need for one at a certain point and more need for another at a, at a different point, right? So I went through a period in my parkour career when I became very interested in like SMART goals, specific, measurable, actionable, realistic, time sensitive. And, you know, I was, I was training everything super precise. Um, and that was cool for a while. But then I just burned out and I also got a lot of injuries actually during that period of time. And then I went to, to basically like completely free form, just playing, like just showing up in the trees and finding what was interesting for me and just doing that and actually made an enormous amount of pro- progress right away. As soon as I let go of all my structure, it was like I progressed the fastest I ever had. But then the progress plateaued and I had to go back to the structure in order to replenish the progress. And then I've found that you're always kind of weaving between those two. So like, um, you know, to just to give you uh, an example of what our sessions look like right now, it's like, I know that I'm going to work on a certain set of things. Like I'm going to be working, like right now I might be working on um, running long jumps, uh, front flips and muscle ups. And so I have a basic idea for that. And then I'm going to, I know that we always do certain kinds of, we always try to warm up, right? Um, in variable ways, but we have certain things that we're trying to achieve in the warm up. 
We always work on flow. We try to always work on some games where we're chasing each other. And then we always work on some like sparring and physical body to body stuff. So then it's just kind of like feeling it out through that. And then usually I do a warm up that is pretty open. Um, and then I'll go to this, the strict stuff. I don't like to start with really structured kind of rote stuff in the beginning because it bores me. Um, I like to get emotionally warmed up for a session first, and then I do the hard work. And this is something that I, this is something I wanted to highlight in what you were talking about is I think that we don't, we don't think enough about how much the emotional and cognitive aspect of training impacts the training effect. Like we think if we give somebody like an ideal stimulus to the anaerobic pathway, the aerobic pathway, or, you know, a hypertrophy or whatever, that we're going to get the optimal adaption out of that athlete. But it's kind of like treating an athlete as a machine. Like a lot of the variation I think in how athletes adapt is how much they enjoy and are intrigued by the process and how deeply it taps them into flow state. So then if you want to know how much structure they need versus how much like openness, it's really a question of like, which athletes, how do you get that state of optimal motivation? When we're warming up, what we're thinking about in our warm up isn't just is the body warming up, but am I seeing people laughing? Am I seeing people smiling, right? Are they becoming less inhibited, more, you know, feeling fearless so that they can take things on? We're really monitoring the emotional state because when you're going to do a, a potentially difficult, like dangerous jump, it's actually your emotional state. It's your ability to focus and your ability to not allow fear to overcome you. That is the primary determinant of whether you're successful. We're always looking at those things. And, and, and so that would be kind of my guideline is like, are your kids having fun or are your students having fun and making progress? And you're always like, well, um, if they're having fun and they're not making progress, you probably need more structure. Um, if they're, if they're making progress, but they're getting really, if there's, they're like not enjoying the process at all anymore. They're probably going to, you're probably going to run into a problem down the line unless you address that. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. I, I really like what you said about the emotional state of the athlete. I think we live in a, especially, I would say in, in the realm of sports performance, that's my microcosm. I don't spend a lot of time in fitness, um, but I would say that the sports performance and strength and conditioning and athlete training world is very heavy um, on structures and like periodization and data and and quantitative measures and not that any of that's bad i mean again there's the balance right these are the dow the center point it's all important um but nobody the emotional state is not looked into much and as you were talking i was thinking about the team that i do the longest uh free-flowing warm-up is my men's tennis team my Mm -hmm. swim teams i do significantly less because they and i think intuitively that's come along because when i first started seven, eight years ago with my men's tennis team, it was, everything was structured. They came in, the warm-up was structured. There was particular tempos and counts to everything. And I, I think part of it was the team too at the time, but the, the athletes were just really bored. Like you could, you could see it out over everyone's face. But then I would go out and watch those guys play tennis and 
everything was completely and utterly changed, you know? And so I, I think over the years, I would try to create more of that state in the warm up and say, and even from a perspective of two, when they'll, they'll run a lap out in the hall up, upstairs and then come back in. And I almost base what we're going to do for the first 20, 25 minutes intuitively based off what they look like when they come in the door. <laughs> are they excited to train? Are they, are they kind of walking like lackadaisically? Um, and that's, that's a huge marker of it. So I'm really, I'm really glad you mentioned the emotional state because I think that, especially too, I mean, you've, you've played basketball, obviously, and you know that what it takes to, if, if, you're trying to dunk a ball or anything like that. Or I'm sure this happens in parkour too. the environment. If there's, are there more people around? What was the process of the warm up light like from not? Uh, and it's like, I imagine you can't really quantify the warm up in parkour. Like I'm going to jump over this specific <laughs> jump X amount of times here. And, and, and each one's going to be X amount harder. I, it's gotta be a lot more free flowing than that. It has to be very feel oriented. Like I, I tried, you know, like I, I did sets and reps with parkour training one point you know i was really trying to kind of adopt some of these strength conditioning models into that world um but you know what we ended up doing is like using time instead of sets and reps use time and then you're you're really sensitive to to um so it's like i'm going to work on x skill for this amount of time um and then you're looking at like okay well can i can i get more good reps in and then uh and then you're you're monitoring kind of the, the psychological side of it always right because parkour is really safer than people think it is like if you look at the injury rates that we experience in parkour they're like less than indoor soccer but on the other hand like the 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 potential consequences of what we do once we reach a higher level are really high right so you have to become super smart about the psychological side of it because if you if you make a mistake you can die um so I think that it's a really interesting lesson in that. And like there, you know, you, you mentioned the flow state earlier, but the research on the flow state shows, you know, you know like a 500% increase in learning. And so if you're taking people through a, a 45 minute warm up, and it's rote and it's boring and it's not connecting them to like flow states or play states because play and flow are really closely related. Um, are you really serving them? Well, even if it looks mechanically like, it's somehow associated with the skills or, or meet some, you know, programming ideal. I, I, I just, I think that, um, we're, we, I think we've made a huge mistake in conceptualizing athletes and human beings in general as kind of like machines and our minds is like computers and our, uh, our, um, our motor control is like software programs. And I think that 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 analogy is just if you look for it, it's everywhere throughout this field. And I think this is really interesting because, you know, like I know that you based on the guests you've had and everything uh, that ecological dynamic is becoming more and more influential. And once you start to look at that with the lens of natural movement, you can really see why this analogy of man as machine um, is just totally inappropriate. Yeah, I was one of the books I read last year that was pretty impactful on me was Robert Greene's Laws of Human Nature. And he had a chapter where he was talking about masculine and feminine ways of thinking. And I think it's very similar to the qualitative and the quantitative. And to me, that uh, and 
to be the ideal, you need to optimize both. You don't just want to lean one way or the other. And, and I always felt like that was, uh, it, it just fit well with the, how you got the best results out of everything. I know, uh, so speaking, speaking in flow state, particularly as well, uh, that Dr. Tommy jump posted something not too long ago on social media that got me thinking it was, it was something to the tune of you have to do several hundred repetitions of a skill to learn it in a structured manner but if it becomes play or if it's a game or if it's gamified somehow it it's like slashed in and to like a tenth it's like 20 or 25 i'm not sure what the source was but it reminded me of i thought about that when you were talking about the warm-up as uh and now this would be my question here is when you're doing things that are a little more spontaneous or flowing or game-like in the warm-up does that is that just for the warm-up things that that improves the learning or does that do you feel like that has a really strong effect on the motor learning in perhaps the structured elements that will happen after after the play is done definitely because you know a lot of times we have this idea that like we need to eat our vegetables right before we get to our dessert Um, and there's places in our life that that's really appropriate but in physical practice one thing that i found is that if you can get people to tap into something they love um, it's going to give them way more motivation to do the things that they just kind of need to do. And a lot of times it's easier to sustain a positive emotional state through the things that need to be done um, once it's been established. So for myself, um, I have like really tight ankles. I sprained my ankles severely eight times on each side between 12 and 18 years old playing basketball. So like in order to do the big scary jumps that I do, I really need to make sure that I'm taking care of my ankles before I do that. And that is not the most fun part of my training. It's something that I just kind of have to go through. Um, if I start with that, I'd actually often results in like having a harder time really getting like emotionally and cognitively aroused properly for the session. But if I do it, if I do it after I've done something playful, something engaging, um, it's actually way easier for me to sustain that state through the the rote work before I get to the like exciting stuff. Yeah, I, I'm glad you made that parallel because yes, I that it, when you had said do the the easy before the hard, I think that vegetable the idea of eating your uh, vegetables and your good food before dessert definitely comes up. But I the biochemistry is different in in movement. It's and I, I mean, I agree with you. I totally agree with you. I've, I've been there myself. I definitely understand that. I One of the things I wanted, with you doing parkour too and being in basketball um, or having done basketball, well, this I think this would be something that's interesting. It's interesting to me for sure. There was a study, um, I, I probably I probably quote this study once a year, either on the podcast or in an article, but it was, it was out of a 1990s sports science book, Thomas Kerr's. It was quoted in, I think easy strength by Dan John and Pavel and it was the Ruzon and his long jump study. And it was the group that they had two groups and one group would train just jumping as far as they could every single time. A second group would try and jump to different uh, markers in the pit and the the sub maximal. So all different arrays and the group that jumped to all different markers um, ended up doing better in the end. And I think there's a lot of different motor uh, learning theories as to why what was presented in the book easy strength was the schema theory and honestly i can't even remember exactly 100 percent what that entailed i think it was like, like you get different instructions by each of the sub maximum you can get a better instruction at the end versus going all out but what um what's been your take on something that's free-flowing like parkour 
in terms of just like raw, in terms of just raw athleticism, because I think a lot of coaches out there, coaches listen to the show as well as myself. At the end of the day, I, I want an athlete. What's the easiest and most effective way to get an athlete to jump higher, run faster and get stronger? Um, that might not be just getting as amped up as you can every time and lifting as heavy as you can or jumping as far as you can, adding skill elements into it all. Uh, in your transition from basketball to parkour, what are some lessons that you've had along the yeah. way in that type of idea? <laughs> idea? So um, you, you said you mentioned you're 36 years old. I'm 37 years old. I uh, like when I was playing basketball, I was like 200 pounds. I'm 225 now. Like my body's filled out as I've gotten older. And I hadn't, I hadn't like picked up a basketball in years. Um, but I was watching like, uh, I, you know, I don't know if you follow like Project Pure Athlete. And I was watching some of his breakdowns on how to jump. And it's quite similar to how we set up for or side flips and front flips in parkour. I ground with my kids and I just decided to like try it out. And all of a sudden I was just bouncing up and I like my, uh, my wrist just super easily cleared the rim. And so I, I just grabbed a basketball and I, easily dunked with two hands um without really being warmed up at all so like i think that that parkour you know you know i'm not working on maximal straight up vertical jumps almost ever in my practice mm -hmm. right now but i think that parkour is incredibly powerful in developing the elastic qualities in the athlete and in developing them through the entire body in a way that a lot of uh, the structured way that we train athletes isn't and i think that really parkour is a, a really profound place to harvest some insight about optimal learning because essentially parkour has been around like popularly for maybe 15 years. Um, like when I started in 2005, uh, there were like three other guys in Washington state. So it's a really young sport. Um, and I came from a gymnastics background. And if we look at like gymnastics as kind of like, there's a lot of parallel skills in parkour to gymnastics. So I was always kind of like, well, if you asked a parkour athlete to learn gymnastics or a gymnast to learn parkour, who's going to become competent in the other sport faster. And for many years, it was like, it's clearly the gymnast, but I don't think that's the case anymore. Like one of my, um, old students, uh, Nathan Weston, he does triple backflips off of like metal bars in the street. Um, I know another athlete, uh, Jared Nahulu, who does, um, who does double, uh, double doubles. He does two flips with two full twists. Um, like, so basically parkour athletes are now flipping and twisting a similar amount to Olympic gymnasts, but they're doing it on inconsistent, like variable terrain over hard surfaces. Um, and they've achieved this despite the fact that they don't have like coaching staffs that are supporting them. They don't train the same amount of hours and they didn't start when they were four years old. So that's pretty astonishing to me. And if you compare it to track and field in the world now, as far as jumping athletes are covering 20 plus foot gaps, running gap jumps between concrete objects. So if you project what they would do if they're able to land on their butt in a pit and they had full mm -hmm. run-ups, a lot of times they're not running nearly as far as a, uh, a track and field athlete. I'm sure that a lot of these guys, Joseph Henderson, Pedro Salgado, guys like this, they would easily be jumping 26 and 27 foot long jumps. Um, and again, that's been achieved. Like, you know, if you compare Pedro Salgado to, you know, a, a, a track and field jumping athlete, you know, he's spending a much smaller period of his 
total training on developing that maximal ability, probably has a much less developed strength conditioning program on top of it. So how are, how are parkour athletes achieving these levels? And I believe it's because there's this open-ended aspect of play in what they're doing. They're tapping into flow state effectively. So I think that as coaches, the lesson that we get from this is that the self-organization potential of athletes and the power of play is vastly more than we realized. And a lot of our traditional methodologies is probably actually getting in the way of optimal development of athletes. I think if you're able to pull parkour athletes out to other sports, you would find that the the elastic abilities that they have um, would be incredibly valuable for developing any other type of athlete. Yeah, that's that's gold, Rafe. I'm gonna I'm gonna go have to start jumping from tree to tree wherever I can to get back <laughs> to that two handed dunk. I uh, yeah. I was gonna ask you how. So you're 37 and you're able to do that. How did that compare to when you were formally training before you found parkour? Um, I jump higher now nice. than when I, than I did when I was you know, 21 and, and, uh, and training specifically to dunk. Were you an air alert back then? Or just <laughs> <laughs> I did. I, no, I, I did. I did the jump shoes when I was like 16. I didn't work. Um, but I, I, I was lucky enough to run into a pretty good coach at, at, in college and get started on like, like squatting and deadlifting and doing like proper shock method plyometrics, mm-hmm. um, when I was 20. So like, so that pretty much skyrocketed my vertical from like 27 to 33 inches, um, in like six months at that point. So that was, that was cool. And I've used that with a lot of people. Um, but I think that, you know, those methods I've come to believe are, are very, very valuable, but they're like, um, I would think of them as supplements, whereas something like parkour is like a whole food nourishment for the body and for all these athletic attributes that we're trying to develop. And, um, I have a, an analogy that I think is really useful. So I don't know if you're familiar with Katie Bowman, but she, she has pointed out this fact about the body, which is like all of your, your connective tissue, your muscle, your bone, all these structural elements in your body, they adapt to however they're loaded. So at the individual cellular level, you can, you know, basically stretch, compress, or smear, um, a cell and its cytoskeleton will get stronger in the direction that it's being stressed. So your whole body is responding to whatever type of stimulus that you're giving it. Now, if you look at somebody who primarily strength trains by say doing barbell calluses, generally just right below the fingers and maybe um, right in the middle of the fingers. Now, the problem with that is that essentially what that means is that the skin around that callus is untrained. The, The skin, because the pressure point the area that's loaded is so specific every time that it's loaded, you're developing uh, a proportional strength problem where you have a massive amount of hypertrophy in one region next to an area that's atrophied and untrained. And when the hypertrophy strong area pulls on the weak area, it rips. So if you look at um, my hand, because I climb highly variable surfaces on trees and rocks, you'll see that there's a continuous callus from the bottom of the palm to the top of the finger. And I believe there's an analogy for what's happening in the, in the entire body when we engage in something like a natural movement practice. We're exposing all of our tissue, tissues to a much broader um, set of like vectors of force, which is essentially nourishment for the cells to become strong. And so we're developing all around elasticity. And I think that 
one of the problems that you're seeing in like a lot of traditional sports is people are becoming very strong, but they're becoming very strong in very specific ways that leave massive proportional strength problems. So um, one of my students and friends is Michael Tankovich. He's a, uh, a physical therapist and athletic trainer for the Seattle Seahawks. And I sat down with him and um, uh, I can't remember something, Patrick Ward, who's their sports scientist. We're talking about the increase in ACL tear rates and Achilles tear rates. And I had heard that the ACL tear rate had tripled in something like the last 15 years in the NFL. Um, and I asked them about that and they said, you, that's probably not a reliable statistic because all the teams are kind of hiding their rates. You can't get a reliable estimate of it, but it's, it sounds about right to them. Like intuitively, that's not, that doesn't sound wrong is what they mm-hmm. told me. So we're seeing this massive increase in, in these non-contact injuries. And my model for what's happening is essentially when you t- take an athlete who plays football on something like a barbell lift, you're creating an enormous amount of strength in one pathway in the body. And then <clears throat> when you ask that athlete to express strength, through much different structures of the body, you have this proportional weakness problem. And that's why we're getting a lot of these rips, a lot of these uh, uh, tissue tears is because essentially we've made some of the tissues much too strong in relationship to the other tissues. So the elasticity and tissue tendon strength that you're seeing in parkour athletes, I think is actually much more completely developed and will produce a much more robust athlete than what you would see from track and field or even gymnastics. Yeah, it kind of reminds me a little bit. And I like the the idea of the callus on the hand uh, that that really does draw a good parallel because it creates like a good mental image there, like a, the typical callus we all have from just lifting the barbell and versus yep. um, the whole palm. Oh, I was going to ask too before I Followed up on my thought. Do you still do any traditional weight training at all anymore? Or just, is it all parkour and natural movement based work? Yeah. So, um, we do definitely use barbell training and ring training at times. Like, um, I'm going to go into a phase of some split squats, um, to kind of support some of the, the things that I need out of my legs, um, and some sissy squats with weight. Um, I actually really love, um, a guy you've had on your program, Ben Patrick, and the knees over toes stuff he's doing. I think it's really useful for a lot of parkour athletes. The way that I kind of look at this is, uh, think of if you think of natural movement as a whole food, um, just like with a whole food diet, sometimes you need to supplement it. You also need to supplement uh, your natural movement training with more specifically targeted exercises, sometimes mobility exercises, strength training exercises. And the thing is that even if you train natural movement, most of the time you don't get to live natural movement. You're spending wood and carry things and do a lot of things that I need to kind of fill in some of what's missing. Um, so I, I definitely, I love traditional strength and uh, conditioning as a tool and a mindset that we can use and a set of, of techniques that we can use to address. Like we, look, we try to build the athlete that has all the big pieces and then we use the isolated pieces to support that. And one of our heuristics is um, kind of always train at the highest level of complexity that allows you to derive whatever adaption you're after or adaptation you're after. So 
you know, basically the, the more complex your training is, the more, the more pathways you're creating adaption on, right? If I'm trying to stretch myself, I'm adapting on one thing. If I'm trying to kick someone in the head in an actual like uh, kickboxing match, like I'm getting some stimulus of that same adaption, um, but I'm getting all these other things at the same time. But of course, a lot of people aren't going to get to kicking someone in the head just by practicing kickboxing. They have to add in some sort of supplementary practice because, because of our lifestyles, because of their previous sport history, whatever it is, um, they're not able to get that adaption at the highest level of complexity. So that's when we start to kind of move down the chain to what we think are um, less fundamental movements, but they can still be really useful. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah, it's it's definitely um, to think, especially with parkour, that you could always go out to the woods <laughs> if you're uh, if you're working, you know, a regular modern life job. It's total body work that you could get in just by doing like a two sets of five deadlifts or something like that. Mm-hmm. Is uh, it's 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 an interesting balance for sure. I I did want to make a, a thought I had with the whole parkour and. Uh, your what's happened with you and the variability and i saw this too like when i was break doing break dancing in high school my art my triceps specifically were like much bigger and my bench press was a lot better than if i wasn't doing that stuff uh sure. and that's one of the things that's always interested me but uh, with that ruzon uh study the long jump study and hearing these stories from you coming back to this i i feel like this isn't this isn't as good as it probably could be but I would always do a lot of bounding, but variable bounding. So if we're going to do a single leg bounding, I'd put some little colored markers out and some of them might be seven feet apart. Some of them might be 10 feet apart. And I always felt like that made the bounding session significantly more impactful. Like I always personally felt a lot more warmed up after doing that kind of work versus just the traditional go as far as you can. Cause you've been doing that forever. Um, and the same thing with, uh, I, I think there's a lot of, uh, like, things that exist in there i i'm trying to figure out where i was going with this i um so I can, I, um, I, yeah I, I think the bounding the variable bounding thing is really interesting because i think that's where you get into this kind of problem of um of like a mechanical versus like understanding a human being as like an ecology so if you think that you're a mechanical thing and your output is just power right then why would the variable bounding help but if you understand that you're trying to optimize motor control in like the super complex system, um, it starts to make sense. And especially when you recognize that that system isn't just the physical components, the emotional component. How do I tap into flow state? How do I get enough challenge that's keeping my brain interested? So what popped into my head, I'm sure you, I know you're familiar with Franz Bosch's work, right? Yeah. But one thing that I really liked out of Bosch's book is he talked about this idea that variability is really valuable in training because it helps the nervous system identify control factors that are common across lots of different um, iterations, right? So there's one idea for why like multi-sport athletes tend to continue to progress longer than athletes who specialize early. And I think this is true. And I think that this is one of the big benefits of like the natural movement practice that we're talking about or parkour. Um, So if you, if you imagine, you know, there's like, say 10 control factors that are true in your maximum jump. And then there's a slightly different set of 10 in the seven foot one and a slightly different set, right. In the, in the Mm -hmm. next one, right. If, if there's some that are, that are central in all of them, it's actually 
educating your nervous system to prioritize those better. And then that expresses when you go back to the maximal jump. And that's probably also related to what's happening in the, the study of the, the long jump to targets, right? Even though you're not getting the same, like say, total muscular output, um, you're training the nervous system to have better control over the muscular system, which then pays off when you're going from, uh, for, uh, for output because you've, you've identified the control factors better of motor control. Yeah, a hundred percent. I I think I know the page you're talking. It's got like all the little like the little balls, and they're like it's like a stack yep. of ten, and some there's some balls that correspond. I know exactly what you're talking about. I that's that was a big book, and that was one of the things that, that I probably actually remember legitimately remember that yeah. sticks with me because cool. I was like, oh yeah. To me, it made so much sense of what I was just observing about parkour athletes and how they've created the, how they have this extraordinarily robust, basically motor control system. It's because they're expo, they're constantly going out and exposing themselves to a high degree of variability over which they try to express these things. Like if you think about gymnastics versus parkour, gymnastics is basically taking a, a stable set of environments. You have four environments for girls and six environments for, for male athletes, right? And, then you try to express the most complex movement over it. In some sense, like the like parkour has that element as well, but like at the basis of parkour, in some ways, it's taking the most basic locomotive movements that human beings have, and then learning to express them in the most complex environments. Right, trying to find more and more challenging environments in which you can express that, um, and that's just educating that that motor system to have that incredible robustness because of that high variability at seeing. I always felt to like things like parkour or anything where a reaction and a reaction is necessary versus just things that are completely serial in nature. For example, just going and running 200 meters on a completely flat track. It's very serial and you probably will find your mind and intentions wandering to different aspects of what you're doing, your hands, your your, your feet, your, your trunk, whatever, whatever it might be, your cadence, whatever it might be. Um, not saying that that's necessarily a bad thing, but that doesn't when even the difference between bounding and variable bounding in, in that little microcosm, there's, if you're just doing bounding, a lot of times, uh, the, the timing chain can get kind of prolonged. Whereas the variable stuff, it almost forces the timing of joints to snap together a lot faster because you're reacting to something now. It's not just how far, and I think I've personally have kind of been at the negative hands of that on some level, especially not playing basketball like I used to. It's mm -hmm. like the farther I've gone from team sport, it's almost like the timing of every single thing has gotten just a little bit slower. Whereas, so I, I feel like the reactive nature has to be a part of it as well. I don't yeah, imagine parkour, that's just through the roof. So um, that's, that's interesting because I, I think you're partially right. Like compared to gymnastics or track and field, parkour is more reactive because it has to have this element of adapting to the environment. And that's very, it's amazing for like triggering flow states. One of the triggers of flow states is a rich environment and also high consequences. So parkour is great at both of those. Um, but most parkour training is, um, is pre-planned and volitional, right? So you look at a, at a, a series of obstacles and you plan the movements that you're going to do. Um, and if you look at something like running a kickback in a football game, that's mostly reactive. And I think that that reactive element is something that is underdeveloped in parkour athletes and something that's really important if you're thinking about application of like escape and reach skills. And also if you're thinking about transferability 
Like how would I create an athlete who has the most ability to transfer? We need to take those skills and all those capacities we've talked about in parkour and get them to express in more reactive situations. So that's actually one of my big passions is what we call a live parkour, which is where we emphasize and play with games where you have to do chase and evade and reach activities, right? Um, And even dealing with contact and disturbance and collision. Um, All of that we think is really important for developing a truly adaptable athlete. And, and that's where you like get the highest levels of, um, of reactivity. Yeah. It reminds me of, uh, like apocalypto, like re- getting chased through the woods, <laughs> right. <laughs> With spears. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, the epitome. It, so master, um, earlier this week, uh, we had a, a training session for instance, and we played a game where we, we, um, so we had all these beautiful trees that we could move in but then we put down a series of objects around them that you could touch. So you could only put four steps on the ground and then you had 20 seconds to avoid being tagged. So it's just a game of chase tag, right? Um, so that was one game. And then the other game that we played was it took six pound medicine balls and we basically played like a hybrid of football and rugby where you had to advance the balls over a series of tree branches with your team. And you know you, you were allowed to tackle the other team and wrestle the ball away. Um, and for us like that, like, okay, you can do a vault, but it was also raining. So you can, you can do a vault, but can you do it when it's raining and muddy and someone's trying to pull you off of the object and you're having to carry a six pound medicine ball? Like that's a live movement skill. Yeah. Those, those types of things. It reminds me a little bit of, um, we would, we would do, I, I always like one thing well, I was going to say is I was like what Jeremy Frisch talks about with the idea of just if you put a bunch of kids in the room, they're eventually going to make up a game and they're going to make their own rules to the game. And yet we stopped doing that with adults because here's the game and here's all the rules, you know, and it it makes me think of that because that was this is there's just so much pure joy in in that. Like here's something that's not what you've done before. And there's the contact and like the rough housing and, and everything that. It's um, like uh, Dr. Tommy John says, like you're in sixth grade again sometimes. Like there's the, that, that carefree and fun state. It's, mm-hmm. uh, I'm sure there's so much emotional power in that that, that goes into. It's like you're, you're, you know, they say don't stop, uh, stop working out and start training or, or whatever, the, the, whatever the thing is. But it's like it's almost like you're, you're not, it's not even exercise. It's, there's so many more factors that are layered into things like that when you're in a group and doing that. And you're, you're getting fit obviously through it, but it's so much more. Yeah, I, I think of exercises as essentially like supplements and movement is the whole food thing, right? So that's the level where we're, when we're playing these games is we're, we're operating at that level. And um, yeah, I mean, I'm just thinking about it, like in the context, you know, you're working with athletes. Um, obviously, you want to keep your athletes safe. Um, but like, you know, if you're working on like a team sport, the ability to create rapport between your players is so valuable potentially, right? Like um, group flow states are, are super critical to high level group performance. Something like roughhousing, engaging in this type of things is, is like precisely how kids develop rapport. Like when you look at like kids on the, on the, on the, on the playground as children, especially boys, right? Like a lot of times the way you make friends is by wrestling. Um, and that ability to connect and have really good kinesthetic awareness of another person to really feel and have empathy through physical contact. Um, I think it has an immense sort of application in developing good group flow and good 
rapport between players. I couldn't agree more. I think that a lot of, in terms of the sports performance field or working with athletes, if you wear the strength and conditioning hat, they say a lot of times it's, it's about, it's not just about the exercise. It's about the culture and the relationships and that that type of work is a gateway to helping a team build relationships and rapport. Like you said, I think is really important. I know we got, we probably have about time for one more question and I didn't have this written down, but based off everything we've said so far, and you think about, you taught, you said it before we've, we dumped so much money into exercise and fitness and health. And yet we're the, we're sicker and, and more out of shape than we've ever been as a, as a society. And this could probably be its own podcast in some level. And I was thinking what you said about group dynamic stuff to, to do could also be a podcast on its own level. Uh, but what would your vision be for, uh, like the modern fit, uh, if someone wants to, I guess, quote, get in shape or train or, I guess, move, obviously, what what would um, what would your vision be for that process in this country versus the more typical, I guess, gym system that we have now? Or would you change? What would you change? What would it look like? Uh, start with what people love, right? What are the activities that sort of everybody who tries them and engages in them? enjoys. Those have to be the foundation of our physical practices because otherwise people won't show up for it. Um, people have busy lives. They've got kids, they've got jobs. If you're asking them to go run on a treadmill for hours, like most people just aren't going to do it. Um, so, you know, for us, we think that's stuff like parkour. We think that's stuff like roughhousing. We think that's stuff like playing with objects like juggling and, you know, ball games and stick games. It's like, instead of thinking of how we can like build all these ancillary training programs that that allow us to do the things that we enjoy. Uh, what we should be doing is how do we scale the games that we enjoy such that they are safe and um, and like provide a sufficient chance of success to everybody who starts them. Like that's the critical thing when you look at like play research is if you look at kids and when they're um, when they're playing, they spend a lot of time negotiating the rules. And what they're trying to do is essentially establish it such that all the players feel like they have a chance of success and they feel safe. And so this is really what we need to do for our whole culture is return to a feeling that people can get success, get something positive, get you know positive emotional rewarding situations um, safely from physical practice. And that's what's going to make it sustainable in the long run. I love so, it. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. No, I just, I just said, that's awesome. I, I, that idea of things, I, I think is fantastic. It reminds me of when I, I, I'm out at the a track on a Saturday or a Sunday and I see people just playing pickup soccer and having, having a blast, you know, like that, that the emotions and the fun that comes with that to, I, I couldn't agree more. You have to love it. it. It shouldn't be a chore. It shouldn't be a, <laughs> I feel like you're just going to run out or it's, it's just not going to be as good as it could be if that was the case. Yeah. And, and I mean, so like if you run, if you play uh, soccer, right, pick up soccer, you're getting cardio, right? But you're not just getting cardio, you're getting like complex coordination activities that are requiring cross hemisphere connection. And you're getting social life and you're getting, you know, flow states and you're getting, you know, connection to other people. And all those things are like nutrients that you need to harvest in your life. Um, if we, you know, to me, something like running on a treadmill or even doing like, you know, machine based, training uh, it's really low uh it's it's very low in benefits compared to the things that we could be doing 
And, and most people honestly aren't going to prioritize it because they recognize that. They recognize that I'm not getting that much out of this. And there's, there's much better ways. We can stack way more benefits into our movement practices and still achieve the health impacts that we want um, when we reconceptualize what exercise is. Yeah, if it was more like that, I think Planet Fitness would be long gone. <laughs> so, That's the vision. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're doing awesome work, Rafe. Hey, man, it was fantastic chatting with you today. I, I had a lot of fun and a lot of really good ideas in my own in my own training world to play around with. So appreciate your time. It was great talking to you. Likewise, I really appreciate being on. That does it for another show. Thanks for being here with us. Really appreciate it. And man, that was a good one. Uh, in the aftermath of that talk, uh, both my own training sessions and those of my groups were uh, both thought-provoked and enhanced as there was just so many good things in that show that really connected a lot of dots for me. Uh, also, if you, if, you, if you enjoyed it and what Rafe had to say, he has a new online course on movement and parkour that you can check out at his website, evolvemoveplay.com. Before we go, we'd like to thank our sponsor, simplyfaster.com, suppliers of high-end training technology. They have been a huge support to this show for a long time. They do awesome work. So support them by checking out their blog and their online store today. And thanks again to simplyfaster.com. If you enjoy the show and what we're doing, don't hesitate. Leave us a rating or review on Stitcher, iTunes, whatever you're listening to. It'd mean a lot to me. It spread the word of what we're doing, and I'd really appreciate it. All right, I'm out for this week. We'll see you next one.